Uh, guys, my name's Nick. If you are new here, uh, lead pastor, uh, most of the time, most Sundays, you'll see me uh, opening up God's word uh, for us from up here. Uh, I also love to um, bring up, raise up other guys to preach as well. So last week you saw John Lugo uh, give us a great word from the book of James. But this morning we are going to be in Luke's gospel uh, once more. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll get one to you. Um, you're always free to take that Bible home with you. Give it to someone you know who needs it. Um, we exist really to spread the gospel and the, the word of God. So happy to give that as a gift to you. You could even take it. Use that as stocking stuffers for your kids this year. There you go. Can you get that? Can you get that ESV Bible in a stocking? That's like your kids would love it. <laughs> All right. Luke chapter 17 is where we're going to be. Um, we're going to focus in on verses five and six uh, this morning, but I do want to read back from verse one uh, just to give us uh, context. So verses one through six is what I'm going to read in, in Luke 17 here. Uh, read it and then we'll pray and, and dive in. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. But what are the one through whom they come? It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must Forgive him. Now, here's what we're going to focus on. Verses five and six. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Let's pray. God, we confess we come to a text like that and say, wait a minute. We talk to trees and they're uprooted and thrown into the sea. They obey us with faith, by faith, through faith. God, we're going to need your help this morning. Making sense of these words that you communicate to your apostles and to us. God, we are a people built upon your word. Living under the authority of your word. I don't come here with my own thoughts. I don't come here, at least I hope not. I don't come here trying to channel the wisdom of man to your people. God, we come here to hear from you. And so I pray that you would allow me to be a faithful expositor. Like a man digging in the soil. God, I pray that we would bring out gold from your word this morning. I pray for those that come in distracted, that you would unite their heart and their mind to fear your name. That their ears would be raised to heaven. That whatever buzz of opinion and condemnation and, and attraction, allure, temptation, whatever buzz is going on, whatever static is in the soul, I pray you would clear it in these moments. 
and that the voice of their shepherd would be heard. You would speak. The voice of their father would be heard. You'd speak. And they know they're loved. They know your mercy and your grace. And they know what it means to walk in close fellowship with you by faith. Would you do all these things and more than I could even think to ask or imagine in Jesus name. Amen. Okay, so this, um, you guys, in case you don't recall, uh, or maybe you weren't here, um, two weeks back, I, I, I spent a whole sermon in this text already. Uh, I'm going to spend uh, this week, and then next week we're going to be on the same topic, but we're actually going to move into um, the, the verses that follow, because I actually see them as all kind of connecting. Now, what I'm doing for these three sermons, I've, I've essentially raised a banner up over these messages. And the banner, what's, what I'd write on that banner is what the apostles say there in verse 5. Increase our faith. So you see that in the title of the sermon. Increase our faith, part 1, part 2, and soon to come, part 3. Now, underneath this banner, increase our faith, I said we're going to be kind of looking at four different things. The first two we looked at last time, that is the nature of faith and the gift of faith. This week, we're going to take take on the third thing, the effect of faith. And the next week, uh, we'll look at the humility of faith as we move into verses 7 through 10. But let me um, briefly catch us up to speed, kind of get us back in the flow of of thought uh, that began uh, last time. I'm going to review just very quickly the first two headings there, the nature of faith. What did I mean when I was talking about the nature of faith? I don't know if you guys recall or if you were here, but... What I said is, if we're, before we can really talk about this idea of increasing our faith and what does you know faith look like in operation and and, and what in the world does Jesus mean that it, when he says that if you have faith you're going to be able to say to this mulberry tree be uprooted and go and it will go before we can talk about increasing faith and the operation of it we need to have a clear sense of what it actually even is we need to know something about its nature. And so I brought out three aspects of faith and a definition that really kind of emerged at the time of the Reformation. I used three, you know, smart, intelligent-sounding Latin words that I will not bore you with again here this morning. But the three basic things translated into English would be this. If we're talking about the nature of faith, it's composed first of content. Meaning there's an object to this faith. It's not just a happy feeling that we have. It's not just kind of like, oh, have a little faith. There's actually an object. Your, your faith wraps on. It holds on to something. And we know biblical faith would be that which holds on to God, the gospel, his word. That's the content. But then we said, secondly, that faith also consists of what we would call assent. Which means not only do I know the content, but I agree with it. Faith is not just knowing it. You can know and not agree. Oh, that's wrong. I know what God says. I just don't buy it. Assent says, I know and I'm on it. I, I, I'm, I'm holding to it because I agree with it. All right? And then the third piece, which I kind of have already alluded to, is this idea of trust. Content, assent, and trust. You see, biblical faith doesn't just agree that the content is true. It personally trusts 
the God who's revealed, the gospel that's revealed. It personally throws itself onto the one who is revealed there. So it's not just that sounds nice. Remember, we talked about the demons. They know the content. They agree that it's true. They just hate it. They shudder in the face of those facts. They never made it to the third part. They never made it to biblical faith, which is I I, I get it. I agree with it. And I'm embracing it as the treasure that it is. I'm trusting in God with all of my heart and all of my life. Now, mark this. I'm, I'm not just reviewing this because I want to fill time in my sermon. As you, as you know, I'm always too long. So I'm doing this for a reason. It's going to come into play as we get into the new content for this morning. So mark that. Faith is content. It's ascent. And it's ultimately trust. Personal trust. That's going to play in big later. Secondly, we talked about the gift of faith. Uh, For this, I'll just give you a different example that came from my devotions this last week. What did I mean when I was talking about the gift of faith? Well, let me show you something from... uh, I was reading through uh, the longest psalm in the Bible, which also consequently is the longest chapter in the Bible. Psalm 119, it's 176 verses. It's crazy. It's a, it's, a, it's a feat to get all the way through that. But I'll tell you what you find when you get to the end. Verse 176. Here's what we read at the very end of Psalm 119. He says this. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. He comes to the end of the psalm and he says... I am wandering about, you know, like that hymn that we mentioned last time, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. He's saying, I have wandered like a lost sheep. I just kind of gone astray. My only hope of getting back on track, my only hope of making it to glory is if you come seek after me. This heart, it's going here or there. This, this faith, it, 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 it comes in and out. This doubt, sometimes it's debilitating. Those temptations, sometimes they seem too good. The only way I'm going to make it is if you seek after your servant. I say that because here because essentially that's the heart. You kind of wrap all that up around these words within these words that the apostles say there in, in verse five, increase our faith. What does it mean? It means just that it means you're calling us to forgive seven times in the day. Someone sinned against us. I don't have that in me, Jesus. I don't have that in me. I'm like a sheep going astray. If I'm going to live out the the disciple road, if I'm going to live out the the Christian life, you got to do it. You got to increase my faith. You got to help me. You got to help me. Now, I, I drew out from their request here the clear implication that faith in Jesus is ultimately a gift from Jesus. The, the presupposition behind their request, increase our faith, is that Jesus actually can get in and help uh, where faith is lacking. He can bring it. He can increase it. He can implant it. He can gift it. 
We need Jesus to help us believe in Jesus. So one quick word on this. If you feel this morning like you're just kind of hanging by a thread onto Jesus. Like your faith is so feeble, so thin, so frail. You're just ready to just fall. You're going to fall away. At this point, that faith is ultimately a gift from him. It's one of the sweetest things I could ever share with you. Because what it means is not only has he gifted it to you, but he will sustain it in you. He's not going to let you go. The work which he began, he will bring to completion. Philippians 1.6. Okay. So now we come to this third heading, this third uh, piece that I wanted to look at, uh, namely the effect of faith. And here's where we start to ask, okay, so we get what faith is, hopefully a little bit better. Okay, we see that Jesus gives it to us. He sustains it in us. He's, he, he, he's like we saw with Peter and in, in Luke's gospel, he's praying that our faith not fail. He's keeping us in the faith. This is wonderful, but to what end? What's the point of faith? What, what does faith look like in operation? What is the effect of faith? What's it doing? Why is it here? What does it look like? With this then, we come to focus in really on verse 6 of our text this morning. And in particular, we see Jesus' response to the apostles' request. Look at it once more, because this is where we're really going to spend the rest of our time. And the Lord said, as they asked, increase our faith. The Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, that's what we're going to deal with this morning. What in the world does Jesus mean when he's talking about if you had faith, here's what you could do. You speak to a tree, it's going to listen. What is he saying here? Now, I'll just tell you up front, confusion abounds on, uh, on matters like this in the scriptures. So I hope what, what I have to say will clear up a little bit of the confusion, but I'm aware I can't do it all in a limited period of time. Uh, and beyond that, I don't always have all the answers. You might be surprised. I don't have all the answers, but I will do my best. Okay. Now, what I'm going to do this morning with us is really just kind of divide up this sermon into uh, the two really agrarian images that he gives us there. So if you notice, he first talks about mustard seeds and then he talks about mulberry trees. That's what we're going to do. It's going to be really nice, earthy, organic morning. All right. Mustard seeds, mulberry trees. Let's go first. Mustard seeds. Um, the mustard seed, we've talked about this because it showed up in a parable about the kingdom of God a little bit earlier uh, in Luke's gospel. But in case you don't recall, uh, mustard seeds were kind of, in Jesus' day, proverbial for their smallness, for their small size. They were, at least at that time, in that uh, day and place, uh, they were kind of the smallest seed known around there in Palestine. And so what, what, what I read at least is, hey, if you were to hold a mustard seed in your hand, it would look like a little speck of dust. So the idea that Jesus is getting at here is this is something very small, like a speck of dust. And he says we need, we need faith 
about that size and we could do amazing things. Now, it seems to me that um, this image Jesus gives us here, faith the size of a mustard seed, is actually used to kind of cut, if you will, in in two different directions. Uh, One of them stings a little bit. The other one's a little bit more encouraging. I'm going to begin like a good doctor with the sting, okay? Um, Because I think, on the one hand... Um, what Jesus is, is, is referencing here when he's talking about this mustard seed of faith with which you could do amazing things. I think he's kind of talking about the smallness, actually, of the apostles' faith. Like, okay, if mustard seed faith is really small and it does amazing things, how small must the apostles' faith be if they're looking at what he's saying a, a mustard seed faith can do and go, gosh, that sounds amazing. We could never imagine doing that. Well, then how microscopic are we talking uh, when, we're, when we're thinking of the uh, apostles' faith here? So there's kind of a subtle rebuke, I think, uh, regarding the, the smallness, the microscopic nature of, of the apostles' faith. And this is why one of the things we're always seeing Jesus talking about with his disciples. I don't know if you remember this phrase, but it shows up again and again in the Gospels. Oh, you of little faith. What's wonderful is Jesus is never saying by that, I'm done with you. I'm sick of you. I'm over you. He's just talking about this very reality. Okay, we've got a lot of growing to do, and I'm here to help. But that phrase shows up four times in Matthew's gospel alone. Let me just read a few of them to you just so you can feel nice and convicted yourself. Um, Matthew 630, Jesus is talking to those who are worried about whether God will truly provide for their needs. Anyone? Anyone worried God's going to provide for their needs? I mean, I mean, not just your wants, but your needs, right? And he says this, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? In other words, you're missing how big God is and who the, who, who the one is who is your father. If he's doing this in creation, how much more will he provide for you, O you of little faith. Matthew 8, 26, when the disciples are freaking out, thinking they're dying in a storm at sea, they come and wake them up. We're perishing. It's over. Jesus says this. Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Do you know who's on the boat with you? I mean, these waves, these wind, they respond, they obey me. Matthew fourteen thirty one. by faith, you remember this story. Peter is walking on the water. He's got this moment of triumph and he's doing it and he's going. And then he sees the wind and the waves were told and he starts to sink. And Jesus reaches out, takes hold of him. And he says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Matthew 16, 8 and 9. Um, the disciples up to this point had already seen Jesus feed the 5,000. And they'd already watched him feed the 4,000. They watched him take a, a few loaves and, 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 and feed the masses in both instances. And yet uh, they're on a journey and they realize, oh, my goodness, Thomas, you didn't bring the bread. Peter, you didn't bring. The, we don't got any bread. 
This is a big problem, Jesus. Nobody, we forgot the bread. And Jesus looks at them. He says this. Oh, you of little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember? Remember when I took the five loaves and I fed the 5,000 or the seven and I fed the four? Do you know who travels with you? I got you. I got you. Oh, you of little faith. So I think there's something of that going on here when these disciples are going, whoa, we can't forgive like that. We can't walk this Christianity thing out, increase our faith. He is kind of going, man, oh, you of little faith. It's so small that even a mustard seed looks huge. In comparison to what you've got, we're going to work on this. We're going to work on this. Um, that's one direction I think this image cuts. There is another direction, and you're welcome. It's more encouraging, I think. And that is, I think with this image, Jesus is trying to get at uh, not just the smallness of the apostles' faith, but the greatness of the apostles' God, of our God. Um, by talking about the great effect that such a small amount of faith can produce, Jesus is highlighting the supremacy, not of faith itself, but of the object of the faith, namely God. Such little faith can manifest such magnificent results, not because faith is just that potent. Like, oh, you drop it in and right? Some sort of crazy chemical. Not because faith is just that potent, but because God is just that great. That's the point. The point is, just the tiniest little bit of grabbing hold of that amazing uh, God can do incredible things. The amount of power that just flows through a little, little tiny mustard seed of faith is just amazing, beyond what you could imagine. The point is, Faith is not faith is so potent and powerful. The point is God is so great, marvelous, majestic beyond what we can understand. Right. As Thomas Schreiner writes on this point, mustard seed faith is enormously powerful, not because of our faith, but because it unites us to the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the point. That's the point. I want you to think for a moment how this played out. If, if you are, in fact, a, a, a Christian in this room, I want you to think how this played out for a moment uh, and, and how you got saved. Think about it. You and I, okay, we're born in sin, right? Day one. David, I think, says in the Psalms, from my mother's womb, and I was conceived in sin. Just from day one, fallen nature, and we come out and, and we're enslaved in it. We walk in it. We live in it. We are enemies of God. We are children of wrath. We live under the threat and curse of death. We're rightly condemned for our rebellion without hope and without God. And then Jesus steps in, right? He takes my sin on himself. He takes my condemnation on himself. 
He goes to the cross and drinks down the cup of the Father's wrath reserved for me. Not him, me. He drinks it. He is lowered into the ground. Dead. He takes the full brunt of the curse of death on himself. And then he rises up from the grave, third day, triumphant over sin, Satan, death. And I just want to ask you, how is it that you and I get to participate in that triumph, in his victory? What did you have to do to participate in that? Years and years of rebellion, sin, Right, rightly condemned. He does all the work. What was your part? I'll tell you what your part was. Your part was a little mustard seed. Just this tiny little, you're on the ground. You're reaching out just to touch the fringe of his garment. And it's all yours. Can I get an amen in here? Everyone's asleep. It's all yours. Just let me touch the fringe of his. I can't even get myself off the ground, but I can fall at the foot of the cross. That's our part. The little mustard seed, the tiny little bit that moves us towards him and the whole victory, the whole catalog of Christ's triumph streams into my account. No condemnation, sin gone. Called a saint. Me? Ask my wife. No saint here. But in God's eyes, because of Jesus, saint. Holy. Washed. Pure. Mustard seed of faith. Eternity of glory. That's how this works. It's a, that's what I, Thank you. You know what? Thank you. I had to ask for it, so it feels a little cheap. But that's all right. That's, I'll take it. I'll take it. That's it. Little faith in a great... God goes an unimaginably long way. So while it is certainly important that our faith increases and grows, and I could have taken you all sorts of texts that talk about that, that talks about that in the scriptures. We want our faith to be growing and increasing and building. At the end of the day, the issue here is not so much the size of our faith. That's not the focus. The focus is the size of our God. In fact, the more you see the size of your God, the greater will be the size of your faith. Do you know that? Okay. Let's move on. That's mustard seeds. Let's move to mulberry trees where we're going to spend uh, the, the, the greater portion of our time. Mulberry trees. Um, this uh, really leads into uh, this discussion now of the mulberry tree because we're talking about a little faith doing a lot. And that's what Jesus is saying here when he says, if you just had this little faith, you could you could say to this mulberry tree, get up and go and it would go and um, let me say a few things real quick about what a mulberry tree even is. Um, in the Greek, at least, there's some ambiguity, but there is relative scholarly consensus that it is, in fact, I think the black mulberry that's in view here. And that's kind of significant because the uh, rabbis and things in Jesus's day would talk when they talked about the mulberry tree, they would they would describe the root system of this tree. And they said it would sprawl out so deep and so wide that its root system was so complex and so uh, uh, vigorous that these trees would often live some 500 years. 
And it also uh, was said, I guess, in the uh, oral tradition of the Jewish uh, law there, that you could not plant a mulberry tree within 75 feet of a cistern. Why? Because the roots are going to sprawl their way, make their way over there. So the point here is this tree that Jesus is referencing has massive root system going deep and going broad. And so when he says that a mustard seed of faith, you got that in me, you got that in God, and you speak to a mulberry tree, be uprooted and in the sea, that is a pretty significant feat in the eyes of these disciples. Obviously, if I speak and even like a leaf moves, I'm thinking, dang, that was awesome. But we're talking about something significant, something deep rooted. And a little bit of faith is gone. So... What um, then is this idea of, of, of the mulberry tree? Here, here we really come to, uh, in particular, this idea of faith's effect. The effect of faith. Because now we're going to start talking about what is, what is this? Uh, what, what is Jesus saying that faith can accomplish? What is the effect of faith? Is this the idea to do signs and wonders, to speak to trees and watch them obey us? Is that the point? Is that why we're given faith? Is that what faith is supposed to look like? Now, here's where we start to encounter those misunderstandings I referenced at the beginning. Because we look at this, perhaps, and if you're like me, you start wondering, man, like it sounds like, I mean, Halloween's coming up. It sounds like Jesus is talking about we're kind of almost in like a, 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 you know, one of the Harry Potter films, right? Like I just get to speak this sort of kind of little spell or this hocus pocus thing and the tree goes. Or, or perhaps if you're not into Harry Potter, you like Star Wars, it, it feels like the, the force kind of a thing, right? Like, okay, I just kind of know how to manipulate and use and I speak and then what I want happens. This is awesome. This is great. I can use this, Jesus. Give me that mustard seed of faith and I can start making stuff happen. Is that what's going on? What does Jesus mean here when he says... Mustard seed of faith, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. What is going on now before we make our way towards an interpretation? I I wanted to bring in similar statements from elsewhere in the scriptures, because uh, we might be prone to think that Jesus maybe was just off script for a moment. Like this was just kind of a one off and he was maybe showing off a little bit. Uh, But what we come to find when we look at the rest of scripture is that this actually is a, a clear teaching elsewhere. That a little bit of faith goes a long way. That things that we ask uh, in faith, God does. And I want you to see some of this. I want you to feel some of the weight of this before we kind of get to our interpretation of these things. Let's get a fuller picture on the matter at hand. Um, Matthew 17, 19 to 20. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's having a similar conversation to the one he is having in our text back in Luke. I imagine he had very, uh, many of these sorts of conversations with them. Uh, the disciples couldn't cast a demon. I don't know if you know the story. The disciples couldn't cast a demon out of this guy's boy. And uh, they're getting discouraged. The father's getting discouraged. But then the father hears Jesus is over there. He brings the son to Jesus. Says, Listen, your boys couldn't do it. Can you do it? And Jesus goes, yes, get out. And the demon goes. The disciples see this and they go, man, I thought we were growing. I thought we were getting somewhere. 
uh, they come to Jesus privately, Matthew 17, 19. And they say, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing will be impossible for you. We're not talking about uh, mulberry trees anymore. Now we're talking about mountains. That sounds even more significant than a tree. And then he just sums it all up with what I want you to hear in particular. And that is nothing will be impossible for you. And he, 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 he talks about why they couldn't, lack of faith. And then he says, uh, if you had faith, in other words, implication, you could do all things. Sounds like our text. Mustard seed, there's a tree, go, and it goes. Mark, in his account of that same story, spins it positively in what terms of what Jesus says there. And he says, not just nothing will be impossible for you, but all things are possible for one who believes. Now, we look at that and again, we kind of go, I think, really? What are we talking about here? All right. Uh, I, I brought up the idea of Harry Potter. I brought up the idea of Star Wars. How about how about like those classic Disney cartoons? Is this kind of Walt Disney Christianity? Do, do you remember uh, Cinderella? What she's singing to her little bird and, and mice friends, right? It's it's a little weird, but it's a cartoon, so that's how it goes. It's a beautiful song. No matter how I don't, I'm not going to sing it. Oh my gosh, I almost just did that. Uh, no matter how your heart is grieving, if you keep on believing, the dream that you wish will come true. And we all hear that. We go, yes, yes. If I keep on believing the, the dream that I wish will come true. Jesus says, listen, and all things are possible for those who believe. Is that what we're talking about? Walt Disney Christianity. I want something. My girls want to be a princess. You know, when they grow up. Oh, listen, girls, you're not going to be a princess because your dad ain't a prince or a king. I'm sorry. I guess you could. I mean, you know what I mean, right? <laughs> You have to set your sights high, but it's, there are things that aren't going to come just because you believe it, just because you dream it and you really want it, right? Is that what Jesus is saying? I, I think we're smart enough to know there's something more to it than that. But let me give you a few more examples where this shows up in the rest of scripture. Mark 11, the disciples see this fig tree that Jesus had cursed with just a few words from his mouth. Remember, he didn't find fruit on it. And he goes, I was hungry. That's not cool. You're dead. <laughs> it's like, there's a lot more to that story that we can't go into now. That makes Jesus sound crazy. He's actually really awesome. Uh, they marveled at this, though. And, and they, they saw that, wow, the fig tree obeyed him. That's amazing. And then we come to verse 22 to 24, and, and Jesus talks to them about it. He says, listen, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that, uh, that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. I mean, you heard that, right? Let me just read it again just in case you missed it. Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. That doesn't sound too far off from Cinderella. He says something similar to his disciples. John 15, verse 7. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
okay, I like where this is going. James 1, 5 through 8, follows the same line of logic. This is what James writes. He kind of fills it out a little bit more. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without approach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will, um, I'm sorry, that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Later in chapter 4, verse 2 of James, he goes on to say, You do not have because you do not ask. And you lift some of these up from Scripture and you just kind of take them, you let them, so, you kind of soak in that, and you go, wow, this sounds great. It sounds like if I just believe it, if I can muster up enough strength, what I want, what I will, what I wish will come. Is that what Jesus has given to us? Is that what Jesus is promising back in our text in Luke 17, verse 6. What in the world are we supposed to make of these things? Now, I'll tell you, I'll reference one of the distortions. I'll tell you what prosperity gospel preachers, what word of faith preachers do with this text. I'll tell you what they make of it. They will say things like this. They will read things like the texts we just read. And they will go, okay, listen, Christ in his death, in his resurrection, has now accomplished uh, a victory for us in such a way that we can kind of, by faith, uh, name what we want and claim it in Jesus' name. That Jesus, because he died and rose victorious over sin, Satan, and death, now we get to walk in that victory. But what that victory looks like is, man, I get to call out, I want, I want health, I want wealth, and I want prosperity. The things that I wish, the things that I ask. Listen, God is going to grant that to me. That's what he says. Faith in Jesus, his gospel, hallelujah, bless his name, fill my pocketbook. Yes. What a good God we have. All of this, of course, is done by faith. That's where you get the idea of the word of faith movement, the word of faith preacher. So if you try to name something, but you don't receive it, it's not a problem with you or I'm sorry, with God. It's a problem with you. It's like James says, if you ask and you doubt, well, you shouldn't expect you're going to receive. You're a double-minded person. And so if you, if you call out for health, if you call out for wealth, and you find yourself sick and poor, it isn't God's fault. It's yours. Anyone sat under this teaching? It's corrupt and it's from the pit of hell. And it will destroy your soul and you will find yourself thrown around not knowing which way is up or down because that's the gospel that's been given you and it is letting you down. Because you will suffer. Christ suffered. All of his apostles suffered. And, and Paul says, man, listen, on the way to the kingdom of heaven, listen, it's going gonna, it's gonna to mean suffering for you. So there's a lot more to it than what these guys claim. The grave error in their interpretation of these words, I think, it seems to me, is that they kind of take these texts to mean there's almost this sort of raw, impersonal power in the universe. 
And if you want to get a hold of that power and subject it to your will, you use this thing called faith. So there's this raw, impersonal power kind of out there, and you just kind of wrap your arms around it. You, You harness it by faith, and you bring it down, and you subject it to your will. This is what I want. Mm. Or you could see it another way, if that's a little too violent for you. Uh, like God just gives us like this blank check. The gospel is a blank check. And, and the way you fill that check out and take it to the bank is by faith. If you have a lot of faith, you're going to write billions in there. You got a little bit of faith. You might have $5 for my, you know, my coffee at Starbucks. to take it. To... But that's the idea. Raw and personal power, blank check, faith subjects that stuff to your will and puts it to use. In the end, such conceptions of God, the gospel and faith, uh, in my estimation, become a Trojan horse for greed. What I mean by that is it, it, it looks like what you're doing is worship. It looks like what you're doing is love for God, serving him, trusting him. It looks like the sort of stuff you can kind of read in scripture, faith and believing God for big things. But really, at the end of the day, there's no love for God here. It's love for self. There's no worship of God here. It's, it's worship of self. That's what makes it so dangerous. It looks like something it's not. It looks like a gift. But there are soldiers inside. It looks like worship, but it's greed. But it's greed. So two corrective principles, and this really is where I'm going to kind of, um, this is what I'm going to end with. I want to talk about uh, if that's not the way to interpret these texts. And, and verse 6 in Luke 17 in particular, what do we do with it? Because I can see where they get that idea. On the face of it, it does seem like that. Man, why am I saying that that is wrong? Now, uh, let me give you two corrective principles then. Corrective principle number one, faith. And this is kind of referencing now back to that nature of faith thing. It's why I reviewed it in the beginning. Faith is abiding in a person. Faith is an interpersonal exchange between you and Jesus, you and God, you and the spirit. Faith is abiding in a person. It is not harnessing raw, impersonal power and putting it to use for your, you know, selfish intentions. It is not uh, laying hold of the blank check and writing it out for millions and taking it to the bank. That's not what faith is. Faith is fundamentally abiding in a person. When you take it and you make it, uh, you know, raw and impersonal and harnessing that, when you, when you make it about uh, writing a blank check, we forget that it is about trusting, loving, serving, hearing from, embracing, worshiping, abiding in a person, namely, especially Jesus Christ. Now, For both of these two corrective principles, I'm going to draw them immediately from the context of the various texts that I read. Because one of the ways, you know, that that the heresies get going is you just kind of lift a text from its context and you run with it. And hope nobody notices what you just did. But I want to show you the context. 
And I'm getting faith is abiding in a person in particular from John 15 in the text I read you there. Now, I read you verse seven, part of it (laughs) on purpose. If you abide in me. Oh, I'm sorry. uh, I read you the part that says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That's the latter part of verse seven. But I want to take you to the whole, the entirety of verse seven, the first part of verse seven, the the part that that comes before the part that the second part is grounded in. Here's what Jesus says. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now that changes the equation entirely. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. It is not ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Full stop. No, that's not what Jesus says. It's if you abide in me and my word abides in you, then what you ask for will be done. But here's the key. Here's what 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 matters so much about this. If you are, in fact, abiding in Jesus personal, deep, loving relationship with him. If his words, his will is abiding in you. And listen to me, that is going to change the things that you ask for. That's going to influence the manner in which you ask them. That is going to to, to transform the motivations behind your asking. Everything is different if you're abiding in the person. You see, the other way is, listen, it's my will and I bring it down by faith and subject it to my will. This is, it's his will all the way. It's his will. And I just want to be in touch with him. I want to be in step with him. I want to be surrendered to him. And when he says speak in perhaps a a, a bold and confident way, well, then it comes from him. Not from me. It's not my will and my word that's decisive here. It's his. I'm just in touch with it. It's not my power that, 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 that's being displayed here. It's his in and through me. I'm abiding in the person. That's what faith is. So you can't just say, you know, pull out your wallet and go, oh, man, I thought I was going to do date night tonight. Let there be a Benjamin. Right. We wish we could. And then suddenly you got money to take your wife out and have a great evening. Now, to be clear, to be clear, God can do that. I mean, you realize Peter's tax money, Peter's taxes showed up in the mouth of a fish. Right. Well, that's convenient. There you go, Caesar. Right. God can do that. But the difference is it's not me and my will kind of making things happen. It's me walking in subjection to him, abiding in him, trusting in him, whatever he brings. And then when I speak, it has it has it has his will, his word behind it, not my own. <coughs> this was really what was the issue, I think, with, say, Simon, the magician. Let me just give you a couple negative examples. From the scriptures, Simon, the magician, do you remember this? He sees the power coming through the apostles. He watches the miracles and the signs. He's used to doing some of these miracles and signs and people were following him. And now all of a sudden they're following the apostles. He goes, darn it. Man, how do I get myself some of that power? And he goes, how about some cash? I got a little bit. Let's do a little, you know, backhanded kind of deal. Give me some of that power. 
But you see, Simon missed the point. That's why Peter rebukes him. He misses the point. He wants the power without the person. He wants the effect. He wants all that stuff that flows from faith, but not the one who is the object of our faith. And you cut it from, from him, and it's basically like cutting a flower from its root and stem. It will not survive, or whatever it is, it is not pleasing to God. And that's what we see also in Matthew 7. 21 through 23, you remember these people, perhaps, that Jesus talks about near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And they, ter- they should terrify us. They should warn us. But he says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In other words, the one who's abiding in me. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Do you see what's the fundamental issue? It's not, hey, we did the signs in the one who I don't know how they got the power, but it wasn't from Christ. Or if it was, it was in some sort of prostituted way. I'm not, I don't claim to understand how that works. All I know is because they wanted the power without the person, he looks at them on the last day and says, all of your works were worthless. I never knew you. You called those wonderful and marvelous deeds. I call them lawless and condemnable. Because faith is abiding in person not just getting a hold of raw power and manipulating it to your will second corrective principle (coughs) sorry my family's fighting a little cold and i feel it myself corrective principle number two love is the deeper miracle love is the deeper miracle um we consider this idea of a mulberry tree being uprooted And thrown into the sea with a few words from our mouth. And it sounds spectacular. Imagine the crowds we could gather. Imagine even perhaps the people that would come to trust Jesus because of spectacular things like that being done in his name. Listen, I'm not opposed to signs and wonders. Maybe I'll have a chance to say something about that before we end. But we're kind of left wondering, are we not? How should we interpret this image? Is this a literal thing Jesus is, is trying to bring us towards? Is it, are we supposed to be trying to uproot trees? Is that the point here? Or is it something else that he's getting at? Well, the context of, of Luke 17 and all these other verses I referenced shows us something a little bit different. Helps us understand a little bit more. And we come to find that love is, in fact, the deeper miracle than any of these surface healings and things, as miraculous and amazing as they are. There's something even deeper than that. Let me show you this first in Luke 17. This is why I read verses 1 through 4 once more, just so you could kind of see the flow of thought as we came into verses 5 through 6. But the idea, if you're following the flow of of, of the narrative there, Jesus calls for radical forgiveness. Seven times in a day, someone sins against you, comes and says, sorry. He says, you must forgive them. Disciples hear that and say, oh, my goodness, I'm not sure we have that sort of thing in us. We can't do it. Increase our faith if that's the call of a disciple. Jesus says, okay, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, mulberry tree, what's he talking about now? You could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and go in the sea and it would obey you. So here's the question. What's the mulberry tree in the context? I would say 
it seems to me that the mulberry tree, the deep roots of unforgiveness that get into the heart of the children of God. The deep roots that sprawl abroad. You got any of those in your heart right now? Just choking out the life of the Spirit in you? You got any, 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 any people that you just can't bring yourself to forgive? Still bitter after all these years? Can't do it. He's, that's the mulberry tree. Those are the roots. That's what we need faith increase to be able to look at and say, in Jesus' name, get out of here. You see, Christ went to the cross and he purchased your own forgiveness before the Father, the forgiveness of your sins. But he also, he also, we're told, earned the right to pour out the Spirit upon you, whereby now you have resources to live out that same kind of forgiving life. And when you say, nah, uh, uh, I don't want to, not him, not her, no way, you are damning that life up in you. And he's saying, it doesn't need to be that way. Forgive. You see, we get, we get all excited about a mulberry tree being uprooted, literally, and moved into the sea. He's saying, I get way more excited when I see deep-rooted bitterness and unforgiveness pulled up by its roots, tossed into the sea, and reconciliation and forgiveness start to take place. That gets me excited. That's the deeper miracle. We see the same basic idea of love as the deeper miracle uh, all throughout those various texts I referenced. I'm just going to show you some of this quickly because I I think collectively it makes it very powerful and hard to refute. Um, Matthew 17, I referenced, remember that nothing will be impossible for you, Jesus says, verse 20. Nothing will be impossible for you. We take that, lift it up and go, yes, I'll put that on my coffee mug, remind myself every morning, I got this, this day is mine. But Jesus goes on in verses 22 and 23, immediately following, and he speaks of his impending death. Nothing will be impossible for you. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die, be rejected. It's going to be horrible. We read nothing will be impossible for you. And we go, we get this kind of triumphalistic sense to it. That means no loss for me. That means no pain for me. That means no suffering. What am I doing right now? I don't know. I mean, you're just getting excited about nothing is impossible for me. And then he just presses back on that and goes, oh, this isn't blank check stuff. This isn't Walt Disney Christianity. Hold on. It doesn't necessarily mean that life is always going to be easy. In fact, sometimes great faith doesn't just save you from the suffering. It gives you my strength to get through it, right? Sometimes great faith doesn't just allow you to preserve your life. Sometimes it's great faith that actually allows you to lay it down in love for others. You remember what we did in Hebrews 11, perhaps a few weeks ago, where it's like, listen, by faith, man, there were guys who shut the mouths of lions. There were guys who stormed kingdoms by sword and sent armies, uh, you know, in flight. And they did all these amazing things. But then there was this other crew who, by faith, were killed, beheaded, lived in holes in the ground. And faith was the sustaining power for both because the issue isn't, oh, let me get this or that. The issue is love, the advance of the gospel, the glory of God moving towards others. But Christ says, listen, it's not going to be as, as simple as you 
think. It sure would be an amazing miracle, I think, in our day of selfies and egocentrism to see a person laying down their life. That would that would be the deeper miracle, would it not? Mark 11. It's amazing. Jesus promises whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. You say, yes, okay, that sounds good. But immediately in verse 25, just like in Luke 17, he goes on to speak of forgiveness. <laughs> verse 24, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. Verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. <laughs> forgive. Now, whatever else that may mean, it means that, my goodness, whatever you're praying for, you start there. Start there with forgiveness. Start there with asking God to help you with the deeper miracle of love. And if there are hindrances, if there are problems in your prayers and other things, the chances are, I think what he's getting at also is that you cut mulberry roots in your heart. Remember what Peter says? Husbands, man, love your wives and serve them because it's going to affect your prayer life if you don't. Like your prayers are going to be hindered. Because there's roots in there choking out spiritual life. So start there. Man, you can ask and receive. But how about let's start with, give me a forgiving heart. That would be a deeper miracle. James, uh, the James text I referenced. Remember in James 4.2, I said, you do not have because you do not ask. And here we get really the idea of a blank check mentality. Wow, this sounds good. I don't have uh, because I don't ask. I'm going to start asking and I will start having. That seems to be the clear implication until you read it in context. Because he goes on and he says this in verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Did you hear that? In other words, it's that raw power thing again to just try to manipulate and get it to submit to your will and desires. Not abiding and flowing out from a loving relationship with Jesus where you love him, know he loves you, and you want to move out. And your prayer life is in regard to love for others. And him being seen in your life. And the advance of the gospel. This, of course, is why Paul in his extended discussion, and some of you probably thought I would go here, and I am. Um, his extended discussion in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 on the miraculous, supernatural, spiritual gifts, he hits pause right there in the middle of his discourse to make sure we get the order correct. He knows we love the signs and wonders. He knows we love the literal mulberry tree being lifted up and the person being healed, all this stuff happening. And he goes, oh, hold on. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 2. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. He even talks about faith. I got all faith and I'm removing mountains. Those are texts we just read. He goes, you got faith, you're moving mountains, but you don't have love. I don't care about that miracle. It's stupid. It's pointless. It's nothing, he says. The deeper miracle is love. That's the thing that makes God sing. Wow, how could it be? And that, 
Let me let me say this. We're almost done. I I, I promise. I, I want to say this before I bring things to a close. God may very well. I, I think part of the inference for sure uh, that we're supposed to draw from verse six of Luke of Luke seventeen is that God can't do miracles. That God does do these things. That God that, that we do have an authority in Christ and and by faith we can heal and we can see provision. All this, but I think the deeper issue that w- comes to surface when you read those texts in context is: listen, those prayers for more surface miracles better be flowing out from the deeper miracle of love. Meaning you're abiding in Jesus and because you're doing that, your prayer life, you are praying, but not just for stuff you want, not just to line your pocketbooks or ensure security for yourself and your little plans, but, but you're praying now for others. And if you're praying for yourself, you pray like the psalmist, God, you be faithful to me and I will declare you in the congregation so they know you're faithful too and you'll be glorified. You see that? So, man, I believe God can do amazing things, provide, heal. I mean, I just think he cares before he cares about the flash and the flare. He cares about the deeper miracle of abiding in him and love for others. I mean, I remember reading stories of George Mueller. I'll probably bring him up many times because it just his autobiography really moved me. But listen, here's a guy who sees all sorts of what I would call more surface miracles of praying for money and this sort of thing. And it happens. But here's the thing you got to catch. His whole life was lived in service of his king. He, 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 was, he was living in service of orphans. He started orphanages and, and the lost, just spreading the gospel. So when he got down on his knees and he said, God, I need money. Like, I want this work to continue. I want the kids to have food. I want people to know your name and your grace. God, please keep this going. And then somebody knocks on the door and they got whatever money it was he was looking for, needing, asking for. And he goes, what in the world is that? That's, that, that's your taxes showing up in a fish's mouth because God sees you're abiding in him and you're, you're moving out in love for others. And he's happy to answer that prayer. Amazing. So God wants to answer our prayers. He wants to do the miracle, both deeper and the surface stuff. But such things, I think we see now follow along the guardrails of these two corrective principles. Faith is abiding in a person. Love is the deeper miracle. We start to get that and then we can start to move in some of the stuff that we see here. Let me ask you a few questions just for you to consider as we close. You can bring these to prayer as as we sing and things. Are you pursuing the surface miracles of signs and wonders and external healings and things, but not all that interested in the deeper miracles of heart change and forgiveness and love? When you pray, are you requesting things merely out of love for yourself or out of love for God and others? Are you abiding in Jesus, in his word and will? Are you surrendered to him, giving him the first and last word in your life? Are you trusting him with everything? If not, and all of us have those places where we're not, let's go to him now and do some work. God, we thank you that you speak and you correct 
and you lead. We thank you that you are a father who loves to give good gifts. <laughs> and you're not going to give your kids snakes and rocks, even if they ask for them. Thank you, God, that you are a good father. And you care for us and you want to see our faith increased and you want to see the effect of our faith. In the right way. Lord, I pray you'd help us right now even to abide. Draw near. Repent. Confess. Rest in you. I pray you'd stir up in us love for others. I pray you'd increase our faith. I pray you'd lift out the mulberry roots of unforgiveness and things that may be in our hearts. I pray you'd help us, God. And I pray you'd answer our prayers for the more surface miracles. I pray we would see that in this church. You're God who loves You love to give the miracle. You love to provide for your kids. You love to show off. God, we just invite you to do that. It's in your name I pray. Amen.